Well, good morning. Last week we began a, a Lenten sermon series leading up to, to Easter on Jesus' present ministry. And so we're talking about what Jesus is actually doing now, uh, today. And last week we tried to answer the simple question, where is Jesus now? And we saw that the most precise answer to that question is that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. And so after his death and resurrection, Jesus was exalted. He was enthroned at the right hand of God, the place of all power and authority. And at the right hand of God, uh, Jesus provides everything that's associated with God's right hand that we, we see in the Old Testament. He provides blessing, protection, rescue, pleasure, etc. And so, among other, other things, that means that Jesus is not sitting idle in heaven. He is active. He is powerful on our behalf. And so today we're going we're gonna to examine the implications of this for our praying. Next week, what are the implications for the spiritual battle? But today we're going to talk about, well, so what? What does this mean for our praying? Paul Miller wrote a book on prayer, and in that book he points out that many people struggle to learn how to pray because they are focusing on praying, not on God. And he says that focusing on praying is like driving while looking at your windshield as opposed to through your windshield, right? And so you don't learn how to pray by focusing on praying. You don't learn how to pray by focusing on yourself. You don't learn how to pray by focusing on your worthiness or lack thereof. We learn how to pray by focusing on God himself. And today we're going we're gonna to look at a passage of Scripture that, that urges us, that pleads with us to do just that. It's in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. This is what we read. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. And so this passage urges us to take our eyes off of ourselves, and this is very unnatural for most of us. Most of the time, we are just so fixated and so preoccupied with ourselves. But, but this passage urges us to take our eyes off of ourselves and fix our eyes on Jesus, understand where he is, understand who he is, and understand what he promises for those to come, who come to God in faith. In other words, this passage explains how Jesus' present ministry, seated at the right hand of God, should influence how we pray. Now, prayer is a very, very complex, sometimes complicated, a very nuanced topic. And so prayer means a lot of things. Prayer means Prayer involves thanksgiving, saying thank you to God. It involves praise, expressing to God, this is what I appreciate about you. Prayer involves confession, saying I'm sorry to God for different things we've done or left undone. Prayer includes listening, pay attention, paying attention to what God might say, ways he might prompt us to, to live our lives. 
But prayer also includes petition. It involves asking God to do things for us. And that's what this passage is, is talking about when it talks about coming boldly or confidently before the throne of grace, asking God to do things that we need. I dare say every single one of us in the room here today has needs. There are things that you need God to do for you that you cannot do for yourself or the things that that people you love care deeply about. You need God to come through. There are things you need God to do in circumstances. There are things we need God to do in our city, in this country, in the world. There, There are things that only God can accomplish. And so if we don't understand and believe what this passage says about Jesus, our asking will go wrong in any number of different ways. And so that's our topic today. We're going to look at two spiritual realities, and then we're going to look at one implication. The first spiritual reality, when I say spiritual reality, we're talking about things that are true, whether we understand it, whether we believe it or not. This is reality. This is the real spiritual world. And the first is that Jesus is our great high priest at the right hand of God in heaven. And this reality is the basis of confident praying. Again, verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And so the author's talking to the believing community. He's talking to people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, are now part of the body of Christ. And he says, uh, we have a great high priest. And so it's not merely the case that there exists a great high priest. He's saying, we have a great high priest. Well, what's the difference? Well, that's the difference between saying there exists a $100 bill and saying, I have a $100 bill. One is much more relevant than the other, right? He says, we have a great high priest. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a great high priest. Therefore, we would be foolish to ignore what he does and what he offers. And and more than just a little bit insulting if we ignored him. And so... I dare say almost all of us grew up not understanding this. We don't have an intuitive understanding of our need for a high priest. Uh, If you didn't grow up under the old covenant, you you cannot begin to appreciate what this means and the, the significance of this. And so if you grew up in the old covenant, you knew that you cannot just walk into the presence of God. God is holy. He's actually so holy that it's dangerous for sinful people to enter into his presence. Remember where they said, Moses, you go up on the mountain. We don't want to have to deal with God. You go up on our behalf. When, when God gave the old covenant, he said, here's a way that you can come into my presence. You come through the high priest. And so there's a high priest. He can enter into the holy of holies once a year. And when he comes, he better not come without a sacrifice for the sins of the people and for his own sin. And so they understood that, that to be able to come to the throne of grace, come into the Holy of Holies, that, that was, that was a, a high honor and a dangerous thing. I've actually read that, that they tied a rope around the ankle of the high priest in case he died in there. Well, who's going to go in and get him, right? They just pull him out, right? And so they would have, when they read this, they heard this, they would have said, wow, we have 
a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And so if you read chapters 5 through 10, you'll see just how great this high priest is. He's superior in every way. He's superior by his priesthood. He's superior by the sacrifice he brings. He's superior by the access that he provides. And Jesus, our great high priest, he's the one who has passed through the heavens, whereas the high priest in the old covenant passed through the veil into the earthly holy of holies. Jesus has passed through the heavens into the heavenly holy of holies. In 8.1, the author gets even more specific about this. He says, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And so our great high priest sits permanently enthroned in the heavenly holy of holies. And so the earthly temple in the old covenant, it was only a copy. Jesus has entered into the real thing, into the very presence of God himself. If you read the book of Hebrews, I mean, it just piles on amazement after amazement. In chapter six, for example, we're told that Jesus entered into the holy of holies as a forerunner for us. And the idea there is not just that Jesus went, but he went first and we are to follow him because we are in Christ. We too can come into the presence of God. Uh, in, in, uh, and so the bottom line is we have full unfettered fellowship with God. Colossians 3.1 actually says, if you're in Christ, you've been raised up and seated with him in this heavenly place. Back to verse 14. Notice that Jesus is also identified as the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of God. We considered that last week uh, when we talked about chapter 1, Hebrews 1, and there we learned that this Son of God is the one who created all things. He's the one who inherits all things. He radiates God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's nature. He sustains the universe after he made purification of sins. He was enthroned at the right hand of God. That Son of God is our great high priest. He's the one who has gone to God on our behalf. We have access through that Son of God. And so the one who represents us before God is incomparable in every way. And because of that, the author says, therefore, let us hold fast our confession. And a confession is what you believe. That's what you confess with your mouth because you believe it in your heart. This confession is mentioned three times in the book of Hebrews. It involves the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. He's made purification of sins. And now he's at the right hand of the throne of God. And so he says, hold fast to it. The opposite would be to hold it loosely or to hold it with an open hand. And, and what the author says, he argues throughout the book of Hebrews, that is the worst direction you can go. That's dangerous if you, if you don't hold fast your confession. Again, in the New Testament, a believer is present tense, one who believes. And so they're not saying, oh, just think back to 20 years ago when you prayed a prayer. No, are you a believer? Are you presently believing? Are you holding fast this confession about who Jesus is and what he's done? The whole book of, our, of Hebrews argues against drifting away from and abandoning this confession. And so think about what this reality of Jesus enthroned as our great high priest 
Think about what the, the implications of that reality for our praying. Uh, honestly, for, for many of us, the tendency is to view Jesus as our great high priest at the right hand of God. We tend to view that as good information, good to know, but it's very much secondary when it comes to our praying. What's primary, what's the most important that affects how I pray and what I pray is how I feel about myself. Okay, it's not irrelevant, but we tend to think, well, if I feel good about myself, I've been especially obedient this week, yeah, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray bold prayers. I might even pray 10 minutes longer today than normal. But if I feel terrible about myself, and I'm consumed with guilt, and I'm so aware of my weakness, yeah, I might just stay away from God until I feel better. Okay, And so, believe me, I understand the need to examine our souls. I understand the need to confess our sins, to be honest before God. But this passage is screaming at us, will you take your eyes off of yourself? Will you quit being fixated on yourself and fix your eyes on Jesus Christ? Understand, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Don't let go of that confession. That is the most important thing that should form and shape what we pray, how we pray, okay? And so fix your eyes on Jesus. That is a spiritual reality. He is our great high priest. It gets better when we move on to verse 15. The next spiritual reality is this is that Jesus' past earthly experience uniquely, uniquely enables him to understand our weaknesses and our temptations. And so Jesus has always been infinitely perfect, infinitely holy, infinitely good. But something was added by the incarnation. Jesus gained something, again, without implying that he was deficient in any way. Something was gained by the the incarnation. And we read this in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now, the author could have said, we have a a high priest who can sympathize with us, right? He could have stated it positively, but he didn't. He states it negatively. We have this double negative. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. And I think it was said that way to, to put a knife into this misconception that we often have, namely, Jesus doesn't really understand me. My weaknesses, my temptations are unique. I'm not like anybody else. The things I've gone through, the things that have happened to me, they are so different. Jesus can't really understand it. He can't relate to me. And if he could, he would not be sympathetic. He would say, you poor, pathetic weakling. When are you ever going to get your act together? I think the author's combating that very heretical thought. No, actually, we do not have a high priest like that. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. By becoming one of us, Jesus is now and forever human, and he is now and forever able to sympathize with our weaknesses, especially those weaknesses that lead to temptation and to sin. 
And so Jesus is not at the right hand of God thinking, I have no idea. I am clueless why these humans find it so hard to trust that my father is good. I have no idea what they're doing down there. No, he knows exactly what we're going through. He doesn't have to wonder about those things because he experienced the full range of weakness associated with having a flesh and blood body in this world. And so the author writes, Jesus has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And some have argued, I think rightly, that because Jesus never sinned, he experienced the full brunt of temptation in the way that we never have. You know how to get rid of, rid of temptation? Well, an easy way is to give into it. Just do it. And the temptation falls off the cliff for a while. But Jesus never did that. He was tempted in the things that he suffered, but he never sinned. And when you think about it, we don't need a high priest who has sinned just like us. The, the high priests in the Old Testament, they could sympathize with the sins and the weaknesses of the people because they themself, themselves were sinful and weak like the people. And so we don't need a high priest who's experienced these outbursts of rage, vengeance, greed, lust, and pride. No, we need somebody who can sympathize with us, but who can help us avoid those things. We need somebody who has successfully negotiated all of our temptations and can help us in the midst of those temptations. And that's exactly what we have in Jesus. In Hebrews 2.18, we're told this, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted because he's tempted just like us, and yet he didn't sin, he now is able to come to our aid when we're tempted, if we come to God through him, if we pay attention to the Holy Spirit within us. We're also told twice in the New Testament another aspect of Jesus' present ministry, another way that he helps us. He prays for us. Jesus intercedes on our behalf. We're told this twice, okay? We're told it once in Hebrews 7.25. We read this. Therefore, he, Jesus, is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus asks God for things on our behalf. We're told it again in Romans 8, Romans 8.34. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And so the emphasis in the, of the context in, in both of those scriptures, the emphasis is on our perseverance, that Jesus is interceding, especially so that we will persevere so we won't lose hope and let go of this confession and abandon our faith. Jesus gets how hard it is to walk with God through this life. You say, Jesus doesn't know my temptations? How can you say Jesus does not understand our temptation? No, he knows, and so he intercedes on our behalf. F.F. F. Bruce is a, was a New Testament scholar, and he made, a, I think, a, a profound point that we see great continuity between Jesus pray, praying while he was on earth and his praying in heaven. He prayed for Peter specifically, and he told him, Peter, I prayed for you. It's in Luke twenty-two thirty-two. 32. He said, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
And when you turn, strengthen your brothers. And so Peter, he, he, Peter said, I'll never betray you. After he betrayed Jesus three times, how strengthening it must have been to remember. Actually, Jesus prayed for me. He prayed that my faith wouldn't fail. He prayed that I wouldn't be like, G, like Judas. And so he, he, was, he turned, he repented, and then he was used powerfully by God. That's the kind of praying that Jesus does for us now. That's the type of help he gives us. And it should give us great strength, us great courage. And the logic is not, Jesus prays for me, so I don't have to pray for myself. No, the logic is, Jesus prays for me, so I too should pray for myself, for the world, for the mission of the church. When you think about it, many times it's our our weaknesses and our temptations. Those are the things that keep us from praying, right? We think, I'm so tired in mind and body, I just don't have the energy to pray. Or we have these weaknesses that say, I'm so full of anxiety and fear, I just can't sit still long enough to pray. Or I'm too consumed by temptation to pray. And so our, our weaknesses and temptations are the things that keep us from praying. This passage says those are the things that should drive us to prayer. Why? Because Jesus gets it, and he comes to our aid if only we will let him. He's a high priest, great high priest at the right hand of God who genuinely understands what we're facing and genuinely wants to give us the help that we need. Therefore, verse 16 says, we can draw near with confidence asking for mercy and grace. I hope it's clear by now that if you and I don't believe and understand verses 14 and verses 15, we are not going to do verse 16, which says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so we're to be so confident, and the word confidence there can be translated bold or even openness. We're to, to draw near with this, this confidence, this boldness. We're so confident because of Jesus' identity as our great high priest, because of his unique ability to understand us, that we are told to draw near to the throne of grace. And where you find a throne, you find a king, you find a monarch, you find someone who is reigning. And that's where we're to go. And again, in the old covenant, God was not only enthroned in the heavens, but he was enthroned above the cherubim and the holy of holies above the ark of the covenant. And only a high priest could go there and only once a year and only with a sacrifice. But in Christ, we can continually draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We have unfettered, full access to God himself. And so we're not confident in ourselves, far from it. We draw near with confidence because who Jesus is, where he is, and what he promises on our behalf. And of course, the only thing that is being dispensed at the throne of grace is grace, undeserved, unearned blessing. And so if you come to God, understand he's not selling anything You can't buy anything. He's not making a deal, so you can't come to him and make a deal. He's giving away good gifts for people to people to to supply what they need. And so he says there, we told there that we draw near with confidence to the throne of grace 
that we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help in time of need. And so catch that. This is important. He's promising to meet our needs at the right time. Okay? The story is told of a, uh, a fellow who went to a monastery for a spiritual retreat. And the monk who met him at, the, at the, the, the entrance there said to him, I hope your stay is a blessed one. If you need anything, let us know, and we will teach you how to live without it. Okay? That's a good point, right? So often we mistake our wants and our needs. The promise here is for our needs. We are free to ask God for our wants. We're very free, and God in his lavish grace gives us many of our wants, but the promise is to meet our needs. And so if we don't understand our needs, the closer you get to God, the more you see the difference. And the more on mission you are, where you say, I don't exist for myself, I exist for the glory of God, for Jesus Christ, to see disciples made among every grouping of people on earth. The more we understand that, the more we see the difference. But the promise is, I will meet your needs, I will give you grace and mercy in your time of need. Think about your weaknesses. Think about the associated temptations with your weaknesses. And so your weaknesses might be associated uh, with your past, okay? They may have, have to do with what you've done or what has been done to you. Your weakness may have to do with your body physically. You, you may have weaknesses that just just dog you day after day. Your weaknesses may have to do with the flesh, meaning the habits, the things that have become habituated in your life that, that you're no longer in control. You can't decide to do different. Uh, your weaknesses may have to do with circumstances that are just so far out of your control. If you understand your weaknesses, that can give you an insight into your temptations that, that generally flow from those weaknesses. So your temptations may involve anger, anxiety, cynicism, grumbling, sensuality, some other type of indulgence. The fact of the matter is is that this week, you and I, we're going to need grace. We are going to bump up against our weaknesses and the associated temptations. We need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We're going to find ourselves in circumstances that we can't fix. We're going to see things on the news that are so far beyond our control. God has to do something. God has to work in power. This passage assures us that when we approach the throne of grace, we will be given what we need because of who Jesus is, because of his unique understanding of what we're going through. And so the question is not about Jesus. That is certain. That is sure. The question is whether or not you and I are going to come boldly, confidently before the throne of grace and ask him to do what needs to be done. Or are we going to pretend like I'm in control? I can take care of this. I'm good. That's the question that this week, how will we live our lives? And so I wonder if you've made peace with the fact, not the possibility, but the fact that you have weaknesses and you need the grace and mercy of God. Have you considered the possibility that your weaknesses are not a curse, but your weaknesses common to humanity 
are one of the things that keep you tethered to God. That like Paul, his thorn in the flesh kept him coming back to God. It kept him humble. It kept him seeking after God. I would encourage you to identify one thing that you're really going to pray about. Purpose in your heart this week. I mean, you can pray for more of that, but what's one thing that you know you need to pray about? You need to make it uh, an item of prayer. And at the end of the week, you will know, you'll be able to say, yeah, actually, I, I really did pray. I really did go before the throne of grace. And, uh, and make that, make that your, your passion. Make that your, your commitment this week. One of the core ways that we learn to pray is by praying with other people. Here at Faith, we've established a monthly prayer night on the third Sunday of the month, and uh, that would be tonight. And I would like to invite you to come back at 6 o'clock. We're going to meet in the north end of the building, uh, and we're going we're to take a—you uh, can leave after an hour. We, we will probably go longer than that, but it's a time— to come before the throne of grace. And uh, gone are the days when we pray because we're supposed to pray. Churches are supposed to have prayer meetings. We're actually going to pray because we have a great high priest who is seated. He's enthroned at the right hand of God. And we have full access to God through him. And he, he, he invites us, come, ask for the grace and the mercy. And so we're going to pray for things that are, are really on our hearts tonight. So we're going to pray for the shooting, the victims in New Zealand. We're going to pray for the state of Nebraska and the flooding, devastation they've experienced there. Uh, the high schoolers, we've got 40 high schoolers that are going through this discipleship experience called Rooted. They're going to be on the south end. We're going to be on the north end praying for them. We're going to pray for the things that are on your heart. You can pray with others. You can pray for others. You can have others pray for you. You have some desperate need. Find in the New Testament, throughout the Bible, actually, people prayed because they were desperate. They were desperate for God to move. And so we're going to pray for revival in our community, in our country. We're going to pray for God to do things in the world that we've never seen before. So if you have a mind, if you're able, join us tonight at 6. Heavenly Father, we ask that this week we would experience you in new and deeper ways. We pray that our praying would be informed not by our weaknesses, not by how we feel about ourselves, but by Jesus' present ministry as our great high priest enthroned at your right hand. God, may we not insult you by thinking that that's no big deal. God, we pray that you would allow Jesus' present ministry on our behalf to fuel our praying. God, may we be a people who prays, who trusts you. We know you're going to be looking for faith when Jesus returns. May we be people of faith, people who pray. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.